Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's Mother's Day, and I, I try to run across different things. People send me stuff, and somebody sent me a deal that says, uh, here's the reasons uh, that mothers deserve to celebrate Mother's Day to the max. Uh, someone said, the first thing is because your toddler found the missing black Sharpie before you did. Uh, that's a bad thing. Because even though your son is potty trained, he has terrible aim. <laughs> Here's a really good one for mothers. Because your daughter said that when it's sunny outside and she looks carefully, she can see your mustache. That's always tough, right? Because you searched and searched and found a Willy Wonka costume just like your son wanted, and then he decided he wanted to be Batman. (laughs) Because on New Year's Eve, you went to bed after the ball dropped in Times Square, but you live in California. So that's not a whole lot to be proud of. Because you've stepped on so many Legos, you deserve workers' compensation. I like that one. If you have a little daughter, this is a good one, because someone had the nerve to invent glitter. I mean, that stuff gets everywhere, doesn't it? Another one is because you can't quit this job. I like that. And finally, because you'd never dream of it. You'd never dream of quitting. So those are some reasons that you can celebrate here at Mother's Day to the max. Well, on this uh, Mother's Day, I want to bring a message from back in the book of Exodus. If you'll turn back there with me. Um, this message came about about uh, two weeks ago. Uh, Cheryl and I were with, with Philip and June DeCourcy, and uh, we were speaking over in uh, Missouri. And we spent a couple days before the speaking in Branson. And uh, we went to the Sight and Sound Theater there and the production of Moses in Branson. I'm sure many of you have been to that. I mean, it was really good. I, I had good expectations. It, it exceeded my expectations. I know that uh, before long they're going to have one of, of uh, they've had Joseph already. They're going to have uh, Daniel, Samson. I plan to go back and see the others. It was that good. But as I was watching that, I'm, you know, I'm always thinking about ahead about sermons and about what God has for us here at the church. And as I was watching the, 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 the play, this production being, being carried out, at the beginning of it, you have Moses' mother, Jochebed, there. And uh, you have Miriam and you have Joseph, or, um, uh, Moses being <clears throat> hidden there among the reeds in the Nile. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes and finds him. And I was just thinking about the great faith that it took. Uh, for her to do all of those things that she did and, and what she was able to place in the life of Moses. You know, Moses is uh, uh, mentioned 784, to- in eight, 784 verses in the Bible. I mean, he's this, this colossal, gigantic figure in the Bible. And you look at his mother who was able to place the truth of God in his life to allow him to live faithfully and ultimately become the deliverer of Israel. And so while I was, was sitting there that evening, I thought, when I get back, I'm going to do a study. I want to talk about Jochebed. I want to talk about Moses' mother. So let me read this passage for us this morning to kind of set the stage. Let's go back to, to Exodus 1.15, and I want to read through chapter 2, verse 10. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and seat him upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then and she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. 
And it came about because these midwives feared God that he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you're to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you're to keep alive. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was beautiful. Literally in the Hebrew, it's good. She saw that he was good. She hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a, a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's, mother, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Well, so reads God's inspired word. Now, this morning, I'm not going to go into as much detail in this story as we normally do in the setting. Most of you know this story well, I'm sure. You probably heard it growing up in Bible school and various settings. But I want to talk just for a moment about the setting of this passage. Then I want to look at the story. And then I want to look at the significance of this for our lives. And we're going to obviously apply this most of all to mothers. I mean, it applies most this morning to really mothers of young children. but certainly applies to all of us. But I hope that the Holy Spirit will take something that's said this morning and apply it to every one of our, our hearts and lives. So I want to look at the setting, the story, and the significance. Now, a little bit about the setting here. The book of Exodus begins where the book of Genesis leaves off without interruption. I mean, notice how it starts in verse 1. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt. In, uh, in, in Hebrew, in Hebrew Bible, they just title these books by the beginning of them, and so literally it's called, and these are the names of. In fact, that the rabbis called this the book of names, here the book of Exodus. So it just continues on the story. Joseph and his family have gone there. Joseph has been there. The, the people have come because of the famine, and they've settled there. But you get down to verse 8, and it says, Now a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Again, Joseph was this great figure, obviously, in Egyptian history, but about 300 years have gone by. And there's a king now, and it, probably it, it's Tutmosa I, and he's a king who doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't care about him. And he says to his people, look, these, these Hebrews are, are getting uh, uh, numerous, they're multiplying, and they've been living up there in the northern area among the Delta region, the land of Goshen, and he gets afraid that if one of his enemies were to come and ally himself with them, that they could, could overtake him. So he has a problem on his hands, and the first solution is to afflict the people, to, to put taskmasters over them. And I love the contrast here in verse 10. He says, we're going to do these things lest they multiply. Go down to verse 10. The more they multiplied. 
So he sets a plan in place to afflict them to make sure that they don't multiply, but he cannot thwart the blessing of God. No one can stand in God's way. So God says they're going to multiply. He multiplies his people even in affliction. Now he comes up with another solution. Solution number two is infanticide through midwives. These midwives were there as these children were born, and so he commissions them to kill the male children but to leave the females alive. Probably, certainly this is to lessen the number of the Hebrews, but also it could be that by killing the male children, what Pharaoh was doing here is setting up a situation where future generations of Hebrew girls would have to marry Egyptian young men, and they would be absorbed by that then into the Hebrew culture, and he wouldn't have to fear them anymore as an enemy. But I love this here. These, these Hebrew midwives, their names are mentioned here. These insignificant women, their names go down in history in the Word of God for everyone to read. Shipra means beauty, and Pua means splendor. And the key thing is in verse 17, but the midwives feared God. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And this is the first instance in the Bible of what we might call civil disobedience, right? Where the government tells you to do something, and you say, we're not going to obey what the government has told us to do. And they do it because they know it's wrong to kill these children. But what these midwives do is they, 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 it doesn't work, and they go in before Pharaoh, and he says, well, what's going on? This plan isn't working. And they said, well, they have the children before we can get there. Now, probably these midwives aren't lying. They probably just maybe told their assistants to kind of not worry about getting there on a timely manner. In other words, it's okay if you're late. So what they're saying technically here uh, is true. It, it's, it's a wonderful thing in the passage here. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them. Now, that's ironic because the very thing that was happening is children were being killed, and yet the way in which God chose to bless these women was to give them children. And again, it shows the importance and the value uh, with God of children and of family. So he gives children to these women who fear God. Now, the third solution that Pharaoh comes up with is, is, is infanticide by drowning. And basically what he does is he gets all the people in Egypt, all of his people, to police his decree. So all the Egyptian people become spies, if you will, on the Hebrew people. And when a young boy is born, that young boy is to be cast into the Nile. So it's kind of like Pharaoh's Gestapo, if you will. You're to throw them into the Nile, but every daughter uh, you keep alive. And, of course, the, the Nile River's infested with crocodiles and all that. And so, I mean, this is a, a terrible scene. This was a collective nightmare for the Jewish people. I mean, think of the fear this must have struck in their hearts. So it was a time of slavery and affliction and cruelty and despair. That's the time when we find the story of Moses and his parents, Jochebed and Amram of the tribe of Levi. Now let's look at this story. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. <coughs> What's interesting, as you go down through this passage, neither one of Moses' parents will be named here. 
He just uh, you know, he'll refers to his mother as she and his father. The, the dad's never actually mentioned even here, which is interesting. We'll talk about that later. The parents aren't even named till chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 20, we find out their names are Amram and Jochebed. What's interesting when you read that passage is Amram was the nephew of Jochebed. So Jochebed marries her nephew. And you say, well, that's kind of weird. Well, back in that day, in tribes and clans like they were, that was common for that to take place. So Amram marries his um, aunt, uh, Jochebed. Um, she's, uh, he, he's the nephew. Now, again, this story, though, is being told by Moses. So think about this. When they're out wandering in the wilderness many years later, and Moses is writing this story, Moses is writing this story, the account of his own parents and the account of his own birth. And the story begins with Moses' parents because God did a work in his parents' life before God did a work in Moses' life. And that's often the way it is. God works in the, the hearts of, of great-grandparents and grandparents and parents and in the lives uh, of children. Now, they already have Amram and Jacob had two other children, Miriam, who's older. We don't know how much older, but Aaron, who is three years older uh, than Moses. Now, Moses is born, and again, it's hard to keep this a secret because you've got spies everywhere. So think about this. For three months, they hide him. Now, think about it. If you're a, a parent now with small children, you know how hard it is to hide a, a three-month-old child. And back then, you know, houses weren't all closed up like they are now. Things were fairly open. And so they trusted God that God would keep him. But after he's three months old, they realize that's not going to work anymore. And so they decide to come up on a plan. And, of course, you all know the plan. She makes a basket, a wicker basket, and makes it waterproof with resin and places it in the Nile. The word that's used here for this basket, the only other time this word is used is of Noah's Ark in the Old Testament. So you've already got an idea, if you're a Jewish person reading this, that this Ark is going to be a means of deliverance. And so I love this. Moses will be the great deliverer, but before he delivers God's people, he's delivered himself by God. So she can't hide him any longer. He's too old. And so she places him down there. I'm in the Nile River. And the waters of the Nile River deliver Moses right to Pharaoh's daughter, who's named Hatshepsut. We know this from history. Um, Hatshepsut eventually became the Pharaoh herself. And she was one of Egypt's most famous rulers. So it's fascinating when you read of Hatshepsut in history. She's the one who came and found uh, Moses there. Now, the Nile River was considered a god of fertility because the Nile River every year at the right time would inundate and flood the surrounding area, bringing a lot of rich soil, and then it would go back down. And so it was considered a god of fertility. And so in God's providence, it may be that having the baby Moses placed there in the Nile and having him found there, that God knows that in the mind of Hatshepsut, she'll see that maybe as this baby being delivered by the God of fertility to her in some unique way. But the point is God's working the, all of these circumstances together. She, she may see this baby here as a gift from the gods. And again, the Nile was a god to the Egyptians, and God uses the Nile to deliver Moses to the exact place where he wants him delivered. So God has already defeated one of the great Egyptian gods. Um, Eric Alexander's a great preacher. He's been here at our church. 
Um, Dr. Alexander was the pastor of the Tron Church in Glasgow, Scotland for many years. He was a close friend of James Montgomery Boyce, and he helped do the funeral for Dr. Boyce. And at the funeral, Eric Alexander said this. He said, Omnipotence has its servants everywhere. I love that statement. The omnipotence of God, God has his servants everywhere. And he even uses the Nile River in this case as one of his servants and Pharaoh's daughter as well. So God was in control. So underpinning everything that happened was the providence of God. God is, his providence is always providing. It's always purposeful. God is always orchestrating the circumstances of life. And in our study of Joseph, we just finished not long ago, we talked about that again and again. We need to be looking for the providences of God in our lives. I love what one writer says. He says, it was not just the river, but the royal house that was subordinated to God's overruling providence. The very royal house, which had decreed death, was made the instrument of life. The river cannot capture its prey, and even Pharaoh's house is changed from destroyer to savior. Think about the sovereignty of God. I mean, the the decree came from Pharaoh's house that these babies were to be killed, yet it's Pharaoh's house that becomes the instrument of Moses' salvation. So Hatshepsut comes and finds Moses there, her her servant does, brings him to him. And Miriam has been stationed there by uh, her mother, Jochebed, to see what's happening. And she runs up and says, I can find a nurse for you uh, from, from among the Hebrew women. Now notice she doesn't say, I can go find the child's mother. And I'm sure that Jochebed had told her, don't say that. Just say, I can go find a nursing mother for you. And she goes, of course, and finds her own mother, Jochebed, and brings her there. And think about this. Jochebed got to nurse her own child, and she got to train him, and she even got paid for it. I mean, that's the sovereignty of God, of how he orchestrates these situations. And, of course, she names him, uh, Hatshepsut names him Moses which in, Hebrew, in, in Egyptian means son or, or can mean born. A lot of names of leaders, like I mentioned earlier, the Pharaoh at this time is probably Tutmosa I. The last part of his name is Moses or Mosa, which means a child or son or to be born of. So basically she just names him son. But it's interesting, the word Moses also sounds like the Hebrew word that means to draw out. He was drawn out of the water. Now, Moses probably lived with his birth family for three to four years. That was the normal time to wean a child in in, in that day. Now, it is interesting. I'll just mention this. John MacArthur, I was reading a book by him this last week, and he believes that Moses may have been nine or ten or maybe even 12 years of age when he was taken to the house, to that family. Um, I know that he must have some basis for saying that. That's not the majority of the reading I did. It says it's probably three or four, and I think that's the better age to go with. But think about this. If it was three or four years, Jacobed knew she had a deadline. That's not very long. And I think every day she must have, have taught little Moses about uh, the one true God, the one true God, Yahweh. Now, they didn't know his name was that yet, though Moses is at the burning bush, but she taught him that. Uh, She teaches him songs about, about the Lord. She must have taught him stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and probably taught him more than anything else about Joseph. 
You know, when Moses writes the book of Genesis, a fourth of that book is about Joseph. She must have taught him all about Joseph because Moses was going to go live in Pharaoh's court just as Joseph had. And she wanted him to know about Joseph and how Joseph was able to overcome the the allure there and the seduction and never worship the foreign gods because that's exactly the same place her little boy Moses uh, would find himself. Now, we're not told here, the Bible is very simple a lot of times and succinct in what it says. In verse 10, all it says is, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. Now, we can let our mind think about this and think about what the handover must have been like. Think if he is three or four years of age and you're a mother and you're taking your son and you're handing him over to a stranger and not just a stranger, but a stranger who is a pagan idolater. And you're going to hand this little boy um, over to him. Think about the, the, the walk down that path to the palace as Jochebed and Amram are going down there, maybe with their other children in tow as well. And on top of that, this pagan Egyptian idolatrous woman gets to name your son. She names him uh, Moses. And in all of this, Jochebed does not know the story of Moses yet, right? We often read this and think, well, it's no sweat. We know what Moses is going to do. She didn't know that. It was hour by hour, moment by moment, that she's having to trust in God that he has a plan uh, for her child. And you think about how did baby, how did Moses deal with this? A three- or four-year-old boy, you're going up there and handing him over to these foreigners to go away. Did he ever even see his mother again? We don't know. I can just imagine, though, that Jochebed is, is leaning over there. She's handing him over, saying, Whatever you do, remember that the God that we serve, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He is the true God. None of these, none of these gods you're going to see. They're not the true God. He is. You need to trust in Him. And she hands him over. He's taken away by Hatshepsut. But what's the significance of this for our lives? Again, I pray that the Lord will apply this to mothers, but to all of us here. And the first lesson would be this. Make sure you have your faith in the Lord. You can't trust God with the lesser things of life unless you've trusted Him with the greatest thing in life. And the greatest thing in life is your own eternity, your soul, your destiny. The first thing we have to trust the Lord with is our own eternal soul. And we believe that we're a sinner, that Jesus is our Savior, that we can't save ourselves. The only way we can be saved is through Him, the one who, who died in our place as a substitute on the cross for us. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The only way that a, a sinful person can have peace with a holy God, the only way that we can be right with Him, is through uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the mediator between God and man. So if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus, that's what you need to do in your heart and your mind. Right now, just bow your heart and mind and trust in Jesus and take Him uh, to be your Savior from sin. A second lesson we see here, and again, this applies to, to mothers here of smaller children, but really to all of us, we need to live our lives by faith, not by fear. Think of all the things that, that Jochebed and Amram had to be afraid of during those first three months. They take him down there and put him in the, the, the basket, in the ark. When, when they're, they're raising him during that brief period of time they have, when they're turning him over, all the things that they have to be afraid of. And it's interesting today what I sense out there with young couples. And my wife, who uh, ministers a lot with, with younger uh, women here in our church, 
She tells me that the, the number one thing she sees today in younger women, younger wives in our church is fear. There's a lot of fear out there with our culture today and all the things that are out there. I mean, all the, you're afraid of the technology that's out there. You know, do you get kids vaccinated? Do you not get them vaccinated? You know, what schools do you send them to? I mean, on and on it goes. And there's all this fear that we're going to make a mistake here and it's going to kind of doom the life of my child. Go over to Hebrews 11 for just a moment. I want to show you something there. Hebrews 11, this is the, the great hall of faith chapter, and Moses is there, and so are Moses' parents. And I want you to read what it says here in Hebrews 11:23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Notice they're not mentioned here either. They're names. They're just ordinary people because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid. Notice those words. And they were not afraid. I look at parents today, and I think there are a lot of things legitimately to be afraid of out there, but think about all that Jacobet and Amram had to be afraid of. And it says here, they were not afraid. And because of their faith, that was passed on to Moses, And Moses goes on then to live a life of faith himself. And verse uh, 25 says, He chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He made a choice. He took the faith of his mother and his father. When uh, when Cheryl and I were in Branson a couple weeks ago, as I mentioned, I saw this guy the the morning after we saw the uh, Sight and Sound Moses production. We were in a, a store, and I saw a guy there, and he was kind of a rough-looking guy, and he had a T-shirt on. He was a big guy. I mean, this T-shirt looked like a billboard. I mean, it was, you know, he was big. And it, 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 it caught my eye. The front of it, it says, Bad choices make good stories. Now, this guy looked like an advertisement for that T-shirt. You know, bad choices make good stories. And we all know, certainly in life, you, know, you make some choice. I mean, it can make for a, 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 an interesting story at some point in time. But as I saw that, we'd just been at the, the sight and sound the, the, the night before, and I thought in my own mind, it's really, though, good choices that make good stories. And that's the story of, of Moses. Moses made the choice. And he made the choice because of the impact of his mother um, upon his life when he was a, a young boy. But again, what we see out there today is just so much fear, and I want to try to help us with that today. And, you know, if your children are young, there's a lot to be afraid of. Uh, you know, when they get to be 16 and they start driving, there's a lot to be afraid of. When they leave home, there's a lot to be I mean, just we can live our life constantly in fear if we don't learn to trust in God and realize that they're in God's hands. There's a quote from Kevin DeYoung. This is a little bit long, but it's good. I think you'll enjoy this. Just about what we see out there in parenting today. And if you've got younger children, I think this will really help you. He says, We live in a strange new world. Kids are safer than ever before, but parental anxiety is skyrocketing. Children have more options and more opportunities, but parents have more worry and hassle. We put unheard of amounts of energy, time, and focus into our children. And yet we assume their failures will almost certainly be our fault for not doing enough. We live in an age where the future happiness and success of our children trumps all other concerns. No labor is too demanding, no expense is too high, no sacrifice is too great for our children. A little life hangs in the balance. And he says this sarcastically, he says, everything depends on us. 
You might call this child-obsessed parenting an expression of sacrificial love and devotion, and it might be. But you could also call it kindergarchy, that is, rule by children. Under kindergarchy, all arrangements are centered on children. Their schooling, their lessons, their predilections, their care, their feeding, their general high maintenance. Children are the name of the game. Parents become little more than indentured servants attending to their children as if they were direct descendants of the Sun King. Parenting has become more complicated than it needs to be. It used to be, as far as I can tell, Christian parents basically tried to feed their kids, clothe them, teach them about Jesus, and keep them away from explosives. Now our kids, and I like this one. A lot of you younger mothers will relate this. Now our kids have to sleep on their backs. No weight, on their tummies. No, never mind, on their backs. While listening to Mozart, Mozart surrounded by scenes of starry, starry night. They have to be put in piano lessons before they're five and can't leave the car seat until they're about five foot six. That's, that's true, isn't it? It's all so involved, he says. There are so many rules and expectations, not just in the church but in our culture. We live in a permissive society that won't count any sin against you as an adult but will count the calories in your kids' hot lunches. I keep hearing that kids aren't supposed to eat sugar, he says. What a world. My parents were as solid as a rock, but we had a cupboard populated with cereal royalty like Captain Crunch and Count Chocula. In our house, the pebbles were fruity and the charms were lucky. The breakfast bowl was a place for marshmallows, not dried camping fruit. Our milk was 2%, and sometimes if we needed to take the edge off of a rough morning, we'd temp fade and chug a little whole vitamin D milk. And he closes, he says, As nanny parents live in a nanny state, we think of our children as amazingly fragile and entirely moldable. But, it, but our assumptions are mistaken. It's harder to ruin our kids than we think and harder to stamp them for success than we'd like. Christian parents in particular operate with, operate with an implicit determinism. We fear that a few wrong moves will ruin our children forever and at the same time assume the right combination of protection and instruction will invariably produce godly children. And both of those are wrong. He's saying, look, we have this idea, if you just follow a few rules, you know, your kid's going to turn out wonderful, but if you make these couple mistakes, you're fearful it's all going to be lost. Neither one of those things um, are true in themselves. We cannot be ruled with our children, especially by fear. We have to be dominated in our lives by faith and by trust uh, in the Lord. And if you have a, a small child who is worrying constantly about all these various things, do the main things God has called you to do right. That's what you're to do. I, mean, I, I like what DeYoung says there. You know, just they basically fed you and clothed you and took you to church and taught you about Jesus. I mean, those are the things that we do, and, and we have to leave the other things with the Lord. So... Don't succumb to a life of fear-based parenting. Here's another thing, and this is related to that. Faith doesn't rule out common sense and creative thinking and action and planning. Just because you have faith, you don't just say, well, I trust in the Lord, and you don't do anything. No, Jacobet here trusted in the Lord. But she also did things. She, she hid him for three months and tried to keep him quiet, I'm sure, and then makes this basket. and She does everything that she can do but she still ultimately then has to trust the Lord. So I would encourage all of us here, do all that you can do, but recognize ultimately no matter what you've done, you have to put it all in God's hands and you ultimately have to trust in Him. Be creative, plan, strategize, do what you can do. 
But at some point in our lives, you have to say, Lord, I commit this child to you. I give them over to you. And that, that'll, that'll take away the fear that we, so many of us are gripped by and paralyzed by today. Finally, one other thing here, and that is no one can take the place of a mother in the life of a preschool child. God exalts the role of the mother in the life of a child. Did you notice as we read Exodus 2, 1 through 10, that the father, Amram, is never mentioned? Now, it's not saying that fathers aren't important, but it's exalting there the importance of a mother in the life of a preschool child. The mother is especially critical in the life of a child in those irretrievable years. I had a, a guy in our church years ago, my boys were younger, and I was talking to him about my sons and what I was trying to do, and he knows my wife and he knows my parents, and he was trying to comfort me, and he said, look, with a wife like yours and parents like yours, it doesn't matter what you do, your kids can never get messed up. And he was kind of trying to encourage me, I think, but I don't know if it was that much of an encouragement or not, but, but, but he was right in some ways, because in those preschool years, mothers spend so much more time generally... Uh, with their children, they, they have so much more input in their lives. And every mother should do her best and give her best during those earliest years and seize those moments and make the most of that time. Um, Chuck Swindoll, in his book on Moses, he, he says this, Moses wasn't grown up by the time he left home, but he was growing. Jochebed undoubtedly had him during what we would call the preschool years. You can bet that mother treasured every one of those days with her youngest boy. Would that mothers of our own era treasured those years with their little ones to the same degree? And then he says this. He says, I may be going out on a limb here, but so be it. I've been there before, and I'll likely be there again. Considering the example of Jochebed before us, I feel constrained to say that if you're a mother of preschoolers, you ought to think and pray long and hard before you turn your children over to someone else to rear. I have no desire to stir up controversy, he says, or raise guilt. I simply want to declare what I see to be biblical principles, principles that ought to be soberly, carefully considered. I'm not writing here, he says, to single moms, nor am I addressing every working mother. I'm not really addressing working mothers with older children in school. I'm writing especially to mothers with preschool children. I'm calling you to think carefully about those crucial, irretrievable years of your child's life and development. If you must work, if no other option exists, I strongly urge you to work the bare minimum and make sure your child enjoys the best possible care. Having said that, he says, I still maintain it is better to sacrifice almost any material goal short of food on the table and a roof overhead than to sacrifice those precious years of opportunity with your little ones. It's an old proverb that's been around. I think it was among the Jesuits. They said, give me a child until he's seven years old, and you can do with him what you want after that. That may be a little bit extreme, but it's emphasizing the importance of these years. Think about this. Jochebed had a deadline. She knew that when this little boy was three or four years of age, he was completely out of her hands. She may never even see him again. She must have thought about that every day. But you think about that. All mothers have a deadline. All parents do. There's a point in time when our kids grow up and they leave home, at least we hope, right? That's the, that's the theory of it. They grow up someday and they leave home and they launch out on their own to go and have their own families. And, and that time goes so quickly. Uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote a little song, a couple stanzas. Let me read this for you. It says, Hold tight to the sound of the music of living, happy songs from the laughter of children at play. Hold my hand as we run through the sweet, fragrant meadows. 
making memories of what was today. Tiny voice that I hear was my little girl calling for daddy to hear just what she has to say. My little son running there by the hillside may never be quite like today. We have this moment to hold in our hand and the touch as it slips through our fingers like sand. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never come. But we have these moments today. That's powerful for us. And, you know, when, you're, when your kids are little and they're underfoot, sometimes you wonder if they're going to grow up or not, right? I mean, it seems time goes slow. But every one of us here that are older, we know how quickly it goes, and it seems like it just time slips like fingers through our hand. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never come. But we have these moments today to treasure with our children, especially in those young uh, early years. Seize the time that God has given to you with these children and teach them about the ways of God and the Word of God. I read a great quote this week. It said, an ounce of mother is worth a ton of pastor. I like that. An ounce of mother is worth a ton of pastor. You have the, the greatest spiritual influence on the life of that child because you spend so much time with them. The great uh, preacher evangelist Gypsy Smith uh, he was uh, preaching some different uh, evangelistic messages in a certain place, and there was a mother there of some children who was gloriously saved and converted to faith in Christ. And she wrote him a message when he left town, and she wrote this message. Brother Smith, I believe the Lord's called me to preach the gospel, but the trouble is I have 12 children to raise. What shall I do? And he wrote her about this back. My dear lady, I'm happy to hear that you've been saved and feel called to preach, and I'm even more delighted to know that God has already provided you with a congregation of 12. <laughs> that's true, isn't it? I mean, God's given her a congregation of 12 of lives to shape and to mold. And as I think back on my own life, as I'm sure many of you will do today as well, three women who have a great impact in my life, my mother, um, who sacrificed uh, for, for my, my brother and for my sister and for myself and was there uh, to help us and to shape our lives who we were young children and to teach us a lot of things, but to teach us about the Lord. And I think about my wife, Cheryl, and the time she invested in, in our two sons. Um, I know she wouldn't give anything for that time, and neither would I. And then there's my daughter-in-law, Natalie, who's raising our two grandchildren. This is something I never thought about when I was younger, but when you have sons... Your sons are going to marry daughter-in-laws, and those daughter-in-laws are really going to have the most influence on your children. It's not going to be even your son. It's certainly, they set the, the, the tenor of the family, but day in and day out, they're the ones who are shaping their lives in so many ways. And I can't thank God enough for the daughter-in-law He's given to us who wants to be with these children and to raise them and to care for them and, and to teach them the ways of God. I'm so grateful for my mother, for my wife, for my daughter-in-law. I thank God for all that they've done for me. And I, I pray that each one of you here will have that same gratitude in your heart as well. You know, think about your mother. Think about your wife. Maybe think about your daughter-in-law or your daughter-in-laws who are bringing up your grandchildren or maybe your great-grandchildren in the ways of God. There's nothing greater than that in all of life for us. And we need to be grateful to them, but ultimately grateful to God, to the one who's behind it all and who's been so gracious and kind to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we come and we would ask if there's anyone here this morning who's outside of Christ, anyone who's never tasted of the goodness of God through Jesus Christ, we pray that they would believe in Him this morning and trust in Him and take Jesus to be their Savior from sin. Father, I pray for our mothers here today and grandmothers, our great-grandmothers. 
Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that they've made in our lives to instruct us, to help us, to encourage us in life. But most of all, to, to model a life of faith for us, a life of trust in you. Father, I pray for our mothers here especially today that you deliver them from fear. So many things to be afraid of in our culture today, and I pray that they'll do all they can, empowered by your Spirit. They'll work hard and use common sense and ingenuity and whatever it is, by, empowered by your Holy Spirit. But ultimately, Father, that we can let go of the reins and turn it all over to you and leave the outcome with you. Oh, God, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us and the mothers you put into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as we are dismissed. If you're a guest or a visitor, uh, we're so glad you're here with us this morning. I'm sure there's some of you here for the baby dedication today, and uh, I pray that was a real blessing to your families. Um, if you've got these doors, though, and across the foyer to the right, there's a welcome center. Uh, there's some folks there that would love to welcome you and, and give you some more information about our church. Well, let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we are uh, dismissed with God's blessing, especially our mothers. Father, go with us now, we pray, and we thank you for each mother, each grandmother, great-grandmother that's here today. Lord, we commit them to your grace. Uh, may they have a day that's blessed, a day that's encourage, encouraging to them. Uh, Father, may they hear wonderful words of gratitude and thanksgiving from each of us. Well, Lord, I, I pray for those who've lost a, a mother recently or a grandmother, and I pray for your comfort for them today. And now, Father, we pray the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us all. And all God's people said.